Hi, and welcome to the Strad Podcast. I'm Davina Shum, I'm a cellist, and I'm the online editor at the Strad. This year, cellist Lawrence Lesser celebrates his 85th birthday, as well as 50 years at the New England Conservatory, where he is President Emeritus. His numerous students appear in concert halls, orchestras, teaching studios, and more around the world. He spoke to me recently about his teaching methods and approaches, including the what, why, and how of cello playing, plus how teaching has informed his playing throughout the years. Here's Larry. Larry, welcome to the Strad Podcast. I'm wishing you happy birthday in advance of your upcoming 85th birthday. We're here to talk a little bit about your career as both a performer and a teacher, which, as you mentioned to me earlier, are inseparable. You know, you can't really have one without the other. Uh, You're president emeritus and cellist at New England Conservatory, where you've been for 50 years. And looking at your website, you have an illustrious list of former students that you've taught throughout the years. So I think needless to say, you know, you've got some pearls of wisdom that you can share with our listeners. So first of all, you know, tell me a little bit about your aims with teaching. I know that you've mentioned to me that you strive for students to become their own teachers eventually. So, you know, tell me a little bit more about that. Well, I'm kind of notoriously known when I start teaching somebody at their first lesson, I say, the first thing I have to tell you is, my ambition is to get rid of you. (laughs) That's usually reacted with a little bit surprise, but I say, no, right now, you have two teachers in this room. One of them is me, and we know that, but the other one is you. And you don't want to have a teacher all of your life. You want to be able to do it on your own. Somebody has been taking care of you since you were born, and now it's time for you to go off and learn how to be your own self. Yeah, basically, you want to make your own job redundant eventually, right? Absolutely. So, I mean, what I try to do at the very beginning, it's very clumsy to get started working with somebody because we don't know one another. We've got to find a common language. But I would say that the thing that thinking about my own upbringing as a player and as a teacher is you've got to make sound. It's all about the sound you make. And there's all kinds of things that go with that. But the three primary elements in teaching that we've got to find the right mix for, and that holds true for anybody who is a performer, is the mixture of thinking, feeling, and moving your muscles. And you've got to find the right balance. You can think about great performers who have strength in one way and not so much in another. And it's the rare one who seems to have found the right marriage of all of those things. And uh, while I'm trying to get rid of my students, I'm trying to get them to feel and think about all of those things. And I would say compared to how I taught a long time ago, I try to be as intuitive as possible to get the imagination of the young person to fill in the things that I can't do. I see them only, you know, once a week for an hour. It's stupid, a stupid short amount of time. And so uh, 
I once joked to somebody that a one-hour lesson is an art form. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and I have to figure out how to use it. Yeah, for sure. And someone's mentioned to me in the past that being a teacher is partly being a bit of a psychologist as well, you know, really getting to know your students. You have to tailor your teaching methods to the particular students. And you mentioned how some players may have strengths in one aspect, but not so much the other. You know, how do you go about finding the right methods for students that could be, you know, incredibly diverse, especially over the years? Well, I would say the first thing is that I don't teach from a textbook. And I consider interaction with every student as a brand new relationship that has to be tailored to where I'm coming from and where they're coming from and where we're aiming for. And it could be quite different kinds of teaching depending upon their needs. But I would say that the, the one thing that I start with is the idea that we play an instrument, the cello, which is not a loud instrument. And, you know, you can sit in front of an orchestra to play the Dvorak concerto and you can be wiped out by the trombones. So the question is, how do you present yourself in a way so that you can convey what you need to convey? And I would say in terms of sonority, one of the aha moments for me was many, many years ago in the 1960s when I was a young professional cellist in Los Angeles doing a lot of things, playing in the movie studios if I needed to for money, mm -hmm. teaching, playing concerts where I could have them, and also doing what I would call gig work. Yeah. And one of the most interesting ones was to be the principal cellist of a chamber orchestra that was conducted by Richard Bonning, the husband of... Joan Sutherland, in an evening of duo bel canto arias and duets with Joan Sutherland and Marilyn Horn, two absolute great artists. And I was sitting there and Joan Sutherland was standing right in front of me, <laughs> to my left, and it was in the old Dorothy Chandler Pavilion in Los Angeles, and the thing was that she opened her mouth. She didn't move at all. She was just standing there. And suddenly the whole hall was shaking with her voice. Now, she was not doing it by power. What she was doing was somehow or other, by intuition, by training, she was grabbing a hold of the airspace and making it resonate. And that was a real aha moment for me because I thought that on a cello, we can't play very loud, but we can make things ring. So... I set out to try and figure out how do we do that on the cello. And one thing that I found was just by getting young people to understand that what makes sound on a cello is a vibrating string. And if you press down on the string, you're killing the sound. But if you can push the string and pull the string, you can make it ring. Yeah. And so a lot of that has to do with a very simple image, I'll say, is that when you're holding a bow in your hand, where the hair of the bow is touching the string is the end of your arm, so that it's one continuous line going all the way to the string. And that since you're moving the bow all of the time, you're constantly changing the balance or the shape of your hand. And that's a, a kind of a general thing to think about, that you're not pressing down because as soon as you squeeze, you choke. Yes, 100%. Because I think a lot of the time cellists, as you mentioned before, I'm, I'm a cellist myself, you know, we're trying to project and we're trying to get 
more sound out of our instrument. Thinking about the bow being an extension of the arm really helps because if you're squeezing too hard, you end up just with a sound that's akin to shouting. It's not a resonant sound, but it's more of a squashed sound. I think another way to look at it is that if you play a pizzicato Mm. on an open string, let's say first with a thumb and then with any other finger, you're setting the string in motion. And then the thing to think about is that when you play the pizzicato with your either way, you are touching the string on its side, not on its top. And so with the bow, if you can play with your bow leaning against the sides of the string, the string is, after all, it's a cylindrical-shaped thing, uh, or in cross-section, a circle. And if you don't play on top of the circle, but on the side of it and push the string away from you, what happens is that it keeps coming back and you keep pushing it. Yeah. And I had I was teaching a fabulously gifted young person just earlier this week and trying to get a deeper sound out of her playing. We were doing the opening of the Prokofiev Sonata, you know, which is so deep and warm. And she was having a little trouble getting it. And so then I said, okay, so can you pizzicato the opening every time you're playing an up bow, play the pizzicato with a thumb every time you're playing a down bow, pizzicato with any other finger. Now just think that when you're playing a continuous no, it's a continuous bunch of pizzicatos and the bow is enabling it to sustain. And as soon as she did that, it was, you know, she got it. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. Bowed pizzicato. And I think you've mentioned this to me before. A few people have mentioned this to me before, but also thinking in terms of the way that French musicians speak about up bows and down bows is not up and down, you know, not, not pressing. Exactly, yeah. but like push yeah. and pull. And that gives more imagery of this kind of horizontal way of playing where you're coaxing the sound of the string rather than trying to force something out. To move to the left hand, the thing that... Um I figured out, and I used to be very, very fussy about do exactly this, do exactly that, and what I'm trying to do is to prevent, to project images that then people can figure out on their own terms. Mm. So it seems to me that when you put your finger on the fingerboard, if you're pointing the finger to the fingerboard instead of pointing to the floor, which is the direction of gravity, gravity is a big thing for us, and gravity is... It has its price, but it's essentially free if you use it well. If you squeeze by squeezing the thumb against the fingers in the left hand, you're going to end up choking. You're going to squeeze and then you're going to get tired. You're going to forget to squeeze. But if you can put your finger on the fingerboard so it points to the floor and then really get all of the heaviness of that side of your body through all the way to the fingerboard, to the tip of the finger, then the sound you produce is as much as possible like an open string. I think little kids, you know, when we play, we, we start with Twinkle Twinkle Little Star or something like that with the, with the bow going back and forth on open strings. And then we learn second, third, and fourth position. And we get to be snobs. We say, oh, I could play that D, open D on the G string because that's more grown up instead of, but it doesn't sound so good. Yeah. And so we begin to demonize open Open strings. strings. Yeah. 
and open strings are what that's we should be glorifying. Yeah, now. we should be trying to emulate that sense of resonance. Yeah, that's so true, isn't it? Because I do remember when I started playing in youth orchestras and all of a sudden playing open strings was considered like just don't yeah, do as, that. yeah, don't do that. It's not growing up. But mm. grown ups we play a stopped note and therefore we can vibrate on that note. So no open Ds yeah. but first finger, fourth position G string. That's that's the yeah. way to go. So anyway, what I'd say about that is the, the amazing thing is that if I have somebody playing just with the bow with a continuous sound and to move their finger around on the string until it really is sitting there, if they move it from the non-way that way to that way, suddenly the sound boops up. Yeah. And in terms of aha moment, they can't believe it because I've not been making them doing it. They're doing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're not really trying, are they? It's not like they're squeezing because I guess when you're squeezing, you're actually exerting more effort, more pressure, but instead just finding a way for your body to enable those resonances. I think I'd go back to the most fundamental thing I have learned over the years about teaching physically Nobody plays a cello more than six or eight hours a day. So on those busy days, twice as much time, you're not a cellist physically. Yeah. But you grow up and you learn to walk and you learn to do all of these things and you grab things with your hands and all of that. You don't think about that anymore. You just know how to do it. And then you pick up the cello and you become... A monster, what I call a cello monster. You, you've been taught to put your finger this way. You've been taught to do that. But why don't you just use your arms the way you use them the rest of your life and learn from that? And, and suddenly then the goal is, I mean, playing the cello is such a complicated thing, but why not try to make it easier instead of beating it to death to do something that's hard. Yeah, try and keep things simple, yeah. The next thing that's very important is why are we playing? I mean, first of all, Pierre Gorski, my teacher, used to say, well, you don't choose music, music chooses you. And it's true that we have something inside of us that we're trying to express. And if we're doing it just for ourselves, we are, it's a wonderful word and I love it, we're amateur. We're doing it because we love it, we're doing it for ourselves. But if you're a professional musician, the reason you're doing it is for somebody to listen. Why do they come to hear you play? Because you are giving them something they want and don't have. So when I walk on stage or when I have somebody, you've got not to think about are you being judged and was that note in tune or did you scratch or whatever. You've got to think about the people out there who are waiting for you to be generous and give them something. And if you put that mindset inside of you as you're playing, you forget the agony of all of those hours you've spent in the practice room trying to master what you're doing and being perfect. Yeah. The whole reason for playing is because you're trying to convey something to somebody who wants it. So they're coming eager to hear you play well. They're not coming to catch you because you missed a note. Yeah, they're not turning up to a concert to serve on, on a panel where they're just going to judge you harshly. I think yes, that's something that I've been thinking about recently because I've recently finished a six-month run of a show. I did the same show every, every night for six months. And the question that I get asked a lot is, how can you stand doing the same thing night after night? But I think... It's really important when you're in those situations to 
put your mindset to focus on the audience because while you might have done the show 200 times, for an audience member, it's highly likely that they're seeing you play for the first time. You are providing that first-time experience for someone. And I think, for me at least, that helps keep things fresh. And so therefore, you know, you, you can't really think about all those minute details of times in the practice room because it doesn't become about yourself anymore. It becomes about the audience. And if you think about the great players of our time, whether it was Rostropovich at his height, and that you see that Rostropovich is going to play, you buy a ticket and you go. Why? Because when you go there, you know he's going to give you something. And that was, I mean, Slava was that way. He was just completely, not only a great master of the instrument, but a great fantastic communicator. Communication is what it's what we're here for. That's what we're trying to do. So if I go back to pushing the bow so it rings more or putting your left hand on there, those are the things that we talk about. I think I have to worry about with my cellist the physical aspect of it because their friend, the pianist, doesn't know that exactly in terms of the cello. So I think it's a responsibility of mine when I'm teaching people to be sure they know how to work the machine. Yeah, you're giving them the tools to enable that communication. But that's definitely not enough because they have to know why they are doing it. Yeah. And then the third thing in terms of thing, I mean, we use our intellect, our brain, to try and capture so that tomorrow we can do it again. But the other thing is, if you're playing a piece by Beethoven and then you're playing a piece by uh, Hindemith, well, they're closer. But I mean, if you're playing... Uh, uh, Piazzolla Tango, and you don't know anything about what is a tango or who he was, and you don't know anything about Beethoven and who he was, uh, or where he lived, or when he lived, or what was going on in his life, it seems to me you cannot get inside the piece. Mm -hmm. Basically, when you're working on a piece, you've got to become the composer. And the composer is depending upon you to, to become that. That's when you write the notes on the page, it's a bare outline. So the, pink, the ink on the page is not music, it's notes. Music is the sound you make. And you've got to grab a hold of the message from the composer and learn how to create it into that person's message. Yeah, for sure. So I think we've kind of covered the, the what, the why, and the how um, strategies of you know, teaching, becoming one's own teacher. Are there any particular traits or trends that you've noticed in particular students that have stood out to you? The ones that have really, I don't want to say successful because success comes in all different shapes and sizes, but particular traits that have really stood out in certain students of yours. I'm hoping to trigger a student to become who they are. If some one of them, and many of them, I've been very extremely lucky to have enormously gifted people who come to work with me. And it's because I'm trying, when I hear one of them get up and I feel, oh, you know, they're doing things I didn't think about. I love that idea. And they make me listen to them. Mm. They make me, they do something like that. One of my wonderful students, uh, I'll name one of them, Annie Jacobs Perkins, not long ago, won the Fournier Prize at Wigmore Hall. 
And she's a very charismatic player and a complete cellist. And I remember talking to her one time. She was playing and it was perfectly fine. I said, yeah, but you didn't flip the switch. Right. You forgot about for whom you're playing and why you're playing. And as soon as they put on that mentality, then that's why they are there and that's why I'm here. That's what we're trying to do. And by the way, I never give bowings and fingerings to students in advance mm -hmm. because I want, if they come in with lousy ones, I want to use that as a, a learning point. <laughs> and if they come in with good ones that I didn't think about, oh. I want to steal them from them. <laughs> So it's a it's a wonderful life. Yeah, that you can always learn from someone being their authentic self. Yeah, and I learn from my students every day. And hopefully they learn from me. Yeah. Well, um judging by the long list of students on your on your website, I'm sure they do. Long list of students and their prolific achievements. Larry, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure today. Thank you very much. That was Lawrence Lesser. The New England Conservatory will celebrate Larry's 85th birthday and 50 years at the Conservatory with a concert at Jordan Hall on 13th of November with pianist Min Su Son. From October to May, Larry will also be curating First Mondays at Jordan Hall, a concert series featuring musical friends and NEC alumni. Each concert is free and open to the public with online RSVP. And don't forget to check out thestrad.com. You'll find the latest news, articles and reviews on all things to do with string playing. If you like what you see and hear, register and subscribe to access exclusive archival content from 2010 onward. We've got 50% off an online subscription for students. And if you're not sure you're ready to subscribe, take out a free trial for seven days. Start reading right away with no strings attached. And if you happen to be on Apple Podcasts right now, give us a little review or rating. It will help other people discover the podcast. Thanks for listening and tune in again soon for another episode. Take good care. Bye.